All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Wendy, and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic to keep myself entertained and to learn more during this time because it's a great opportunity. And there's so many amazing people that are available because of the pandemic. Um, so today my background is my daylilies. These are the native daylilies in my garden, which is just blooming beautifully right now. And I think this is number 73 of my webinars. Uh, I have to go back and look. Um, my guest today is Martina Neerhart. This is her second time. Her first webinar is one of the most popular webinars that we've done. Um, so please go and watch that webinar on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. It's fabulous and it's all about fascia. And fascia is really a key to all of this. But today, Dr. Neerhart's gonna talk about back pain. I'm gonna let her do a little brief introduction for those of you that haven't um, heard her before or met her before, and then we'll get into the, uh, into the webinar for the day. Hi, Martina. Hello, Wendy, it's nice to see you. Uh, yeah, early morning you. for you, it's already afternoon for us. Yep. Thank you for having me back. I really enjoyed our first talk and I really enjoyed the other ones. It's, it's really interesting to see how everything interconnects and uh, you can see how everything goes together and how important everything is. I really enjoyed a lot of those webinars you had. I really enjoyed the one from Raquel about oh, yeah. the stretching and the fascia. That was really nice. Or the one from Yogi, because it goes so well with what I've done before. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the same, but more important about a lot of different things. Um, equine back pain, most people think it's just because of bad saddle or because they have kissing spine. You read the question would then be, why do they get kissing spine? But there is a lot of different things that can cause equine back pain. That's why I split it up in external factors. That means things that come from the outside and can cause back pain, and internal factor, things in the inside of the body that can cause back pain. Um, yes, oh, a short thing about me, yes, sorry. <laughs> My name is Martina. I'm a veterinarian based in Switzerland. I do um, rehab. That's my speciality. I do acupuncture, chiropractic, some osteopathic taping, everything what you call holistic medicine. I am very fortunate that I have other very good vets around me where I can send for clinical evaluation and I can do just the rehab um, stuff that I like most. And a lot of my patients do have back pain. That's why I got more interested in it. All right. Uh, somebody's having a little problem dropping out, but I'm thinking it might be more their connection. So if anyone's having uh, any issues with sound or with the video, just please put it in the chat. Um, I'm not sure that there's much I can do about it, but if I know about it, that just helps. All right. So um, do you want to, you're going to run your PowerPoint today, right? No, I'm gonna do it. I'm I'm technically handicapped. I no problem. <laughs> Let me get that. I can get it up here, and I can run it without a problem. Uh, let's see the slideshow. Wait for the start, and then I just have to. I have to go over here. So I'm just gonna do my screen share here, folks, and then let me just check chats. Okay, everybody's just good there. Okay, share screen. Alrighty. Perfect. 
So just so you know, folks, um, I'm running the slideshow. Martina's doing all the talking. So sometimes she has to prompt me to tell me to change. <laughs> I will. Oops, come back here. So, signs of back pain in horses. Um, mostly, there are some supple signs and there can be some obvious signs. These pictures are more from very obvious signs like rearing, balking, stopping in front of a jump, like refusing. But it can be as supple as gait abnormalities. Um, like that means like intermittent lameness. That means sometimes in a turn, he's not turning properly. Or when they're walking, they're pacing instead of walking. Next one. Uh, it can be a lack of propulsion. That means your horse is not going forward as it wanted to be. Or if you want to collect it, it's not pushing from behind. It's refusing to set back. Next one. A wrong lead canter or cross canter. That can also be a sign of back pain. Behavioral changes, like it can be like the big ones that we see here, that horse starts rearing who've never done it before, or it starts stopping has never done it before. It can also be like, it just doesn't like to turn to the left anymore, or it gets grumpy. Like these are the big ones that we already mentioned. There's more. Resistance to saddling and girthing. That is something that we often overlook. If you come with your saddle and your horse starts to grind its teeth or puts his ears back or starts biting his chest, these are signs of uh, discomfort in a horse. The same as the inability to stand for the farrier. Um, if they have back pain and due to that, horses usually go into a lordosis. That means they get a hollow back. If the farrier lifts up the leg, that means that they have like even more tension on the already hollow back and that gets uncomfortable. This can be a sign of back pain. Like another supple sign, stiffness, reluctant to bend, to give to the reins, to take your leg, stuff like that. These can all be supple signs of um, back pain. Overview about external factors causing back pain in horses, like pack, girt, bridle fit, are obvious ones. Oh, you're still here. Oh, I'm still there. Where'd you go? That's a good question. Okay, I'm just asking you to start your video again. Uh-oh. Martina? Where am I? Uh, I, <laughs> I must be somewhere because... Hang on, I'm going to stop here and see if I can figure out where you went. I have to ask you to start your video again. So somehow your video... No, I'm, I, sh I still should be because I can hear you. So we should still be connected. Wait. Here, you're back. <laughs> what happened? I don't know. You this is why I'm not working the computer. Got it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you had already several... Um, Webinars about hoof problems, trimming and chewing, how this is connected to back pain. So we're not going to mention that again. Teeth problems. I know you had already some about um, teeth problems, dentition, TMJ. 
Yep. And well, we're hoping so to have, we're working on some more people to talk about teeth because I think it's really important. And um, Yes, it definitely is because the stomatognathic system is so important and connects everything, the front end to the back. Um, yes, yep. that's what we just oh, mentioned. I, please say that word and define it for me. Stomatognathic system. This is the... Everything is connected from the shoulder girdle forward to the head. This is the so-called stomatognathic system because it's stoma, biting, and teeth that is connected with that. So forearms, like we have a, a muscle that connects neck and teeth higher down to the sternum and to, your, to our upper arms. Same as in the horses. So if we have like a crooked stance or not proper closing of our um, TMJ or dentition problems, this will influence how much pressure we have on the legs. In humans, for example, we know that if you put just a paper in between your teeth, if you stand on pressure plates with your feet, if you have them just on the one side, it's going to change how the pressure is distributed under pressure pipe from the feet. Just one sheet of paper between your teeth on one side. This is how finely tuned it is. It is because we have um, our bulla part is there. So we also have like our um, balance, our proprioception is highly influenced by this system here around the TMJ. That's why it's so important. So it's basically the sternum, shoulder, so the thoracic sling forward to the head. Yes, and the shoulder. Like shoulder girdle too. It's in, it's it's included. We have we have uh, muscles connecting that and fascia connecting that. Okay. If you think about the fascia lines um, from from Rika Schultz from the front leg, they all end up here or here from the front end. Okay. So this is a very important um, part. It's called the stomatognathic system. Like here again, soft tissue involvement and myofascial restrictions, like we talked already about. Um, subclinical lameness is usually uh, often occurs in a diagonal pattern. That means if we have, a, whatever reason, left front lame or right hind lame, they're always gonna have compensation because in acute phases usually horses compensate in a diagonal pattern if it goes on for a very very long time it can get same-sided but in acute phase that means when it's not long ongoing it's usually in a diagonal pattern and this can cause back pain because we're compensating it's due to compensation again um, subluxation, as I'm doing a lot of chiropractic, um, I'm going to tell you quickly how they develop, what they do, and how they influence the horse. Back muscle fatigue is a really, really important one. Um, also, core muscle strength, because 80% um, of the stability of our um, skeleton is done by muscles. So if we not have enough muscles, we are missing out on a lot of strength, especially in horse breeds that have very elastic 
um, or hyperflexible connective tissue, what for example in the warm bloods is more and more a problem because we start to breed them for extreme gates and we know from genetics that the saddlebred has the same problem. That's why we often find some swayback horses in them. And we also see that in older horses or in um, broad mares that have been used for breeding excessively where they get the lack of muscle tone and they get the sway back. And then the rider, don't forget the rider. They have a big influence um, on the riding style if the rider is sitting to one side. Um, is, how's the training? Is it too much for a horse, especially when they're growing. What about the substrate? We often forget the ground. The deeper the ground is, the more tired the horse is quicker. So this is something we should not forget. A lot of lameness cases, for example, like suspensor injuries that are getting more and more common are due to deep substrate and too much work and foot imbalances. Um, yes. Who's your friend? That's Victor. Okay. He's decided to join our webinar, so I thought we should introduce him. <laughs> yes, he's my little helper. He helped, he helped, helped me write that one, so if something's not good, it's his fault. Okay. <laughs> so, um, myofascial dysfunctions, they're usually starting with tissue, tissue trauma or infant inflammation that can be you know you worked your horse hard and it got a little muscle pain and we all know how that is this leads to muscle spasms we know that all ourselves when we had worked too hard um, if that still stays on we develop adhesions these adhesions in the fascia lead to altered neuromuscular control because from my last lecture you know that fascia has a big influence on how the nerves um, report back to our brain. This um, bastardized neural input leads afterwards to more muscle imbalances which overworks again just specifically one muscle group and that vicious cycle is going on and on. We can stop that if we kind of like at the second stage where muscle spasms or adhesions are, just do some stretches like Raquel showed, or give it a good massage. And more most important, give it some time off to heal. Don't work on. Good. So, is it really back pain? That's a big one for me. Um, Sorry, hang on. <laughs> no problem. Um, there is a study from Hofland and from Varen from 2004 where they looked at over 800 horses with orthopedic problems. And they found 74% of the horses suspected with back problems had actually a lameness problem. On the other hand, over a third of the horses presented for limp lameness had a back pain. So I want to point out, if you think your horse has a back problem, it can be secondary to a limp problem and just treating the back or trying to build up muscle for a back problem will not help. Do a proper lameness workup. Diagnosis is a must when you wanna treat properly and when you wanna help them properly. That, that's a huge percentage. That's a big number for the study, 800. Yes. Days. And that's yes. a 
huge percentage, three quarters of the horses had limb problems. Wow. Yes. And that's where shoeing comes into perspective again. Yeah. Why it's so important. We can't look at the back without looking at the feet. This is why it's so, so important. It's everything is connected when we need to learn and look at the horse more as a whole and not just as a part that needs fixing because everything's connected. We can't just pick one. Next one, please. So a short overview of our anatomy. Um, anatomy, sorry, it's again from a, from a study, this time quite old one um, from Mr. <laughs> no, I know. My youngest brother was born then, so no, it's not so old. Um, but he was looking at a survey on, on over 400, nearly 450 cases on problem on the thoracolumbar spine. Um, what is really, really important to know, 70% of the horses that had back pain had more than one problem area. So this is nearly... 20%. So it's like I said, it's not just one area where we can pick and choose. Um, the next one, 19% had no problems with their back, but were showing back pain. It was either a lameness problem or they were otherwise undiagnosed. And we're going to talk about those ones um, that because they have some of those internal problems that can cause back pain that we're going to talk um, more in detail later on. Nearly 40% had soft tissue injuries. That means muscle, fascia, ligaments. So again, if we look, we look here at the um, thoracolumbar spine, and this is when you listen to Yogi, this is one of the problem areas that we get if we have a negative plantar angle, um, because we have the broad attachment of the fascia there from our thoracolumbar um, fascia, and this is a very, very important area where we can get problems. So shoeing plays again into it, or foot balance, let's put it that way. About 40% had um, kissing spines. So impingement of the dorsal process. This indicates a weakness of the muscles or another reason that these horses went into the compensation and got a lower doses, a hollow back, because this is what happens. Our kissing spines stand like that. So if we make a hollow back, they tend to come together. They start to kiss and this is when they touch and bone on bone is never a good idea. That's when it starts to be painful. And for, for anybody watching that has not seen the Equisoma webinar from last Wednesday with Pam and Diane, it was all about the thoracic spine. So please go back and watch that video. It was a, they had the bone room with a really good demonstration of the thoracic spine and kissing spine and that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. just a good resource. Other problem of tying up, where again, soft tissue related, it can be tying up, coracoidal neuritis, so sciatic nerve inflammation, subluxations of the vertebra, or lumbago. And I'm going to explain that later on when I um, talk about the subluxations. From the chiropractic point of view. So this is a human spine, and um, but the horse equine spine looks the same. 
um, what you can see here is a normal one and then you have the um, the subluxated one the red thing you see that's coming out there is a prolapse disc okay. um, it is it is not um, how to say damaged at the moment because discs are made to move like that, that's exactly why they're there, but it's not made to stay like that for several hours. If we have now a so-called subluxation, this means all the anatomical structures are still um, intact and working how they should, but we have contracted muscles in preventing normal movement from the spine. So what happens is like all the muscles on the left side contract for whatever reason. You might have done a, a, a movement that was not like very healthy or something like that. What happens when you have those contracted muscles, they press now on your nerves that are coming out and cause it kind of like an impingement. And this is kind of like going down the road and there it is um, causing muscle imbalances. So um, it perhaps makes your extensors be just a smidge late for the movement to, come to balance your flexors. And this at the end can lead even to a tendon injury when, when the stretcher is not in symmetry with the flexor because it's always a little bit late. So the other one has to take more um, of the load that would have been otherwise shared to stabilize the whole column. The other thing about it is when you, when you look at the bulging discs, discs are highly, highly innervated. They have a lot of nerve endings in there because they're very, very important. And if one of those discs is staying a longer time like that, this is gonna, she's gonna tell the body, I'm very, very uncomfortable. What's the body doing? it contracts the muscles more to make that area more rigid so there's less movement in it, but in itself is causing a problem again because there's no movement. Um, and this is the origin, what we call lumbago. A lumbago is actually just contracted muscles pressing on your nerves and firing um, pain signals to your brain. There's nothing wrong with your discs, in kind of like being healthy anatomy structure or anything else, but is very, very painful. Whoever had that once um, doesn't want to have it again. Next one. You have to press one more. Okay. There's one more. There we go. Yes, that's what we said, the stress and pain on the disc and the joint capsule. Joint capsules are the same. What's not shown on these pictures here, and what is really important for you to know, I think, is the disc is also part of the articulation with your rib pad. Your rib is attached in there, right under where the nerve comes out. There you see the little joint that would be made with the, um, with the rib head. So if we have some of our respiratory muscles contracted in between ribs, they can also cause back pain. And that's also subluxation, but it's somewhere else. It's in a rib, but it's causing back pain because it's attached up there. 
There have been people in hospitals suspected for a heart attack and all they had was a subluxated rib. It's very painful if it goes on for a longer time. Here's the picture that you see the rib pad, just so you can imagine where it is. There it is, yep. Yeah, and you see part of the joint capsule of the rib pad is your disc. Oh yeah, right there. If, yes, so everything that affects your back is gonna affect your rib, it's gonna affect your breathing. Don't forget that because that's very important for horses. If they can't move their ribs properly and they're breathing, um, they can't gallop because breathing and gallop astride in a horse is um, coupled. It's a coupled motion. That's why they start to breathe very fast when they're galloping. That's why we hear it because they can't do two strides on one breath. It's impossible. Well, and wouldn't like horses that are complaining about their girth, that's going around their rib cage. So if they have a rib that's, in not, you know, that's subluxated or something or damaged or say a horse got kicked in the field, that's going to be really painful. It, it's enough to overgirth them. I had race horses not perform properly because their surcingle they had to prevent slipping off the racing um, saddle because they're very light and usually slide very easily depending on the back of the horses. If they attach them too much, they were just not performing the last 200 meters because they couldn't breathe anymore. Right. Oops. So these are um, possible um, causes for subluxations. It can be, like I said, overused tight muscles, a bad movement. It can be, like you said, an impact that can be, or pressure, that can be a surcingle, that can be a saddle girth, that can be a pressure on the back, that can also be that they got kicked by somebody else. Um, like fascia posture is like, how do they stand? It's again from the shoeing. Don't forget stress. Um, also in humans, stress is a major, you can leave that. Okay. Right. Stress is a major contributor who influences one of our most, two of our most important, you can go to the next picture because we're talking about that right now, um, most important muscles that are responsible for stabilization. If you see that little red one in the pelvis, this is our iliopsoas. Yes, that one. This is our iliopsoas. Iliopsoas is one of the major stabilizer and it's also one of the major muscles that gets influenced by stress. So if we're stressed, this one starts to contract and with it our diaphragm, another stabilizing muscle, it's not just for breathing, it, breathing, it has two columns, two muscle columns on the side that help with stabilization and are very important and these two they are interconnected like that, um, somewhere here under our rib cage. And I'm gonna stop just so we can see what you're doing. Yep, go ahead. Okay, <laughs> they're like interconnected at this, this area here, like that one comes from up and the other one comes from down and they hold together like that. So if they contract, our pelvis does that, we start to bend forward. And this is what happens. So when we do that, 
this is causing back pain in humans, lower back pain, because we strain our lumbars here. Because the connective, the, the counterpart that should help the, the lumbars to work together is our iliopsoas. He should relax when these one contract, and if he doesn't, we get a spasm. And this is what makes it painful. But you have a lot of problems with that, right? Because they're always in a, in a uh, flexion. And they're because yes. it's really contracted and then they can't stand up. <laughs> yes, yes. That's uh, one of the stretches they have to do. They need to do a saw stretch. Yep. Um, so here I just did um, put down a few of the intrinsic muscles. Uh, I think um, Raquel talked about them. Our most important one is the multifidi. Uh, the multifidi are the ones that run like, like little feathers. They over um, run always two to four um, spinous process and connect them like this. So you, you have to think about the feather, how they lie like next together. When you think about how a feather is built off with those little um, diagonal fibers. And so this is exactly... As I understand multifidus, I call it multifidus, um, it has like yeah. one chain muscles, then uh, so it's crossing one joint, then two joints, then three joints. So you get this incredible stabilizing influence yes. because of the short chains that keep things apart um, rather yes. than letting it touch. And it's, that's also true in people. We have multifidus and it's one of the yes. main causes of back pain when that muscle atrophies. Yes, and one of the most important things to know about this muscle is like all the intrinsic muscles, everything that's next to the spine is highly innervated with muscles and it's also a lot of mitochondria in there. That means they are very quickly fatigued and it takes a long time to build them up. Um, we see, like if you look, we have 10 times the same amount of nerve endings in a tiny piece of multifidi than we have in, for example, the gluteus or the quadriceps. 10 times more nerve endings. They're 10 times more sensitive to if something goes wrong because the spine is so important. It's very dear to the body. If the spine's not working, we have a big problem. Um, but that means also it fatigues faster because it has more tissue that consumes oxygen and glucose. Those stabilizing muscles really are important, but they can tire very quickly. In the neck, we have the longus colli that takes over. We have the big one, the longissimus dorsi, that it's this light purple one here on the top. Yeah, my pointer got, there we go. There we go. Purple one. This one? Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. The big, no, the big purple over, yeah, all over the top. Yeah, right. yes. just, I got it. I was yeah, behind. That's the longissimus. Yeah, the longus coli is lower down there and the other purple. Um, then we have the spinalis. That's not on this picture. This would connect the spine um, and at the caudal part, help to um, stabilize it. That's one that often gets pinched when the saddle's too tight. Mm up top and then we have trapezius this is the big one over the shoulder joint that helps to stabilize the shoulder joint onto the body to prevent the whole body falling in between the legs uh, deltoidus has the same one just helps also uh, with the forwards motion serratus is a big one 
that comes from under the shoulder and attaches at the upper arm towards the trunk. It would go um, from the shoulder towards the green arrow where the green arrow points. So this is the one that is responsible for, um, no, sorry, that's a latissimus. Serratus is up on the neck where the, where the white, uh, 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 yellow arrows are up there. Well, sorry. it's like so it has a, it has a, uh, uh, has two parts of it, right? Yes. Yeah, that's the one I was describing. That's latissimus, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is the major rotator of our ribcage. This is the one that is responsible. And when horses turn, young horses, they go into a turn like a bicycle, you know, they lean. Because their muscle is not developed. Because what he should do, it should turn the thorax again so the legs have the forces distributed straight onto the ground. If that's not happening, that's when you can get splint bones. So it's not the lunging itself, but it's the weakness of the muscles up top that's causing splint posts because the forces are not go down perpendicular. Um, and then the pectoral muscles. These are the ones that we have here from the sternum part. Like if you look where it's yellow, this will be your pectorals going down to the red. And then we have the abdominals, um, the follow up of the big red band at the bottom. So these are our, that's our core muscle sling that we have there. Um, the diaphragm I mentioned already. So if these get weak, we get so-called dead or weak back. It's called back muscle fatigue. Um, it's called, caused by weak core muscles or compensation. Yogi had a very long talk about what happens when you have a negative plantar angle because those horses have to go into a compensation. That horse we see here in the picture is a picture perfect um, example for it because you can see the hypertrophy of semitendinosus, semimembranosus that desperately try to pull that tail down and that back up because the back itself is no longer moving properly. This is a very, very typical thing you see when we have a longer ongoing compensation. It develops slowly. That's the tricky part of it. You do not realize it's coming, um, but it creeps up on you and then the horse starts to have problem. It's already too late. Like I said, it leads to a hollow back. It predisposes um, for kissing spine and other pathology because like when the back is weak and instable, um, this is when, when it gets painful. And it takes months to recover. Like it is a long road and we need to work on all the affected parts. That means if the horse has already a sore back, we need to do injections or shock waves or whatever you choose for modality there. We need to look for the reason for that compensation. So that means this is, um, is it from shoeing? Is it from a saddle that has not been working? Has the horse been overworked? All these things need to be taken account for the rehabilitation and need changing before we actually go into a program to build up muscle again. First, we need to break the pine cycle. Like I said, it's better to be prevented, check regularly, and 
I, I tell my clients the best to do when you build up muscle and when you work your horse, um, just take a picture once a month. Put it, let him stand straight. Take a picture once a month. Take one straight from the back, one from the side, one from the front, and then you compare. At the first three months, you might see not a difference. Also, when you build up muscles, because it can be very frustrating because it takes so long. But when you do that over 12 weeks, you're going to see a difference. And this is when it gets like, oh, finally, I can see something. <laughs> yeah. So um, we often forget horses are growing till they're pretty old, especially from warm blood. Um, it is gender depending. The first ones who have closed epiphyseal gaps, that means who are fully grown, are usually the mares. It can be the youngest ones I've seen were six to seven years old, also in several different studies. Um, but if it's a stallion, they're going to be at least eight. I've never, I've not seen a study that had a stallion that was younger than eight years of age before it has a clue, all the uh, growth gaps closed. Geldings can take up to 10, 11 years of age, especially these big dressage warm blood geldings. And this is something that we have to keep in mind. This means they can have growth spurts. You can have a 10 year old big gelding that can still be growing. And he will have three, four, five weeks where he has very tight back muscles, where he's not moving properly, where, he's prop where he has problems to collect. And then from one day to the other, it's like, huh, he can do it. I mean, this is really something we need to keep in mind. Horses do grow till they're at least, I say, eight years old, seven to eight years. And it doesn't matter if it's a quarter horse when it's a gelding or if it's a warm blood. If it's a tall quarter horse, he will grow till he's about 10 years of age when it's a gelding. Um, same goes for thoroughbreds. I'm going to have some um, more uh, numbers about that later on. The last growth plates to close are the ones in the vertebra, especially lower cervical C6, C7. Um, TH1, atlas, and on the top of the withers. They close after the pelvis and the sacrum, and this is around six years of age, where pelvis and sacrum normally close. The more intense you work a horse, and the bigger the pull is of those large muscle groups on those growth plates, because it's counteracting. The bone is trying to grow together, and the attachment of the muscles is pulling apart, the longer it will take for them to close. So it's not uncommon to have a racehorse nine years of age with still open growth plates in their pelvis. Um, then just work them in short durations, give them enough time off. Best is impulse training. Muscles grow best when you do impulse training, short bouts. That means two, three minutes work, two, three minutes break, two, three minutes work, two, three minutes break. This is what works best to build up muscles. And you don't have to think you're not training your horse. It will grow, it will get stronger, even in short bouts. 
it's better than to overwork the muscles, especially in, in deep ground. If you have been working your horse intensely, the muscle takes 48 hours to recover. That means this is the time that we also knew, know from athletes, in humans it's the same. You can't have two strengthless training, one behind the other, and expect the third day the horse is going to be sound. They will be stiff. Um, this is really important to keep in mind. Um, also, like I said, when they grow, the back gets instable because bones can grow two to three millimeters in one night over 24 to 48 hours. When they decide to grow, they can grow very, very quickly. You say, okay, it's two millimeters. It's perhaps, let's say, three vertebrae, two millimeters. So we're talking about five to six millimeters altogether that the back got longer. But if we have a two, three meter back, that's the length of a horse, that means we have a huge lever on that. This is, a, is, is causing a big change in force and this will cause the stabilizing muscles, those are the ones holding that stuff, to tire much quicker. And that's why they start to splint. And um, when they start to splint in the lumbar area, they pressing, especially between L3 to L5 in that area, L2, 3, 5, this is where the nerves come out, who innervate our biceps, quadriceps, tensor fasciae everything that is responsible to prevent an upward, um, fixa upward fixation of the patella. So that's why we often see in three, four, five-year-old horses, when they grow in the lumbar area, that they get an upward fixation of the patella. The vet just says, yeah, we need to inject the patella. Yes, we do that. And then they have two weeks of rest, and then they're better, or they're not, um, depending on what's um, actually going on. But usually, if you give your horse two to three weeks reduced work and work specifically on core muscles and do some um, walking poles and stuff like that. You get the same result without injections. Um, train core muscles before you go for speed and want more to carry. Um, in the earlier days, horses were first used for plowing and working in harness before they were ridden or were worked in hand before they were ridden. And that's the reason why they first needed to build up core muscle strength before they were backed. They need enough time to recover and they need enough time to grow. Sorry, that's a lot without pictures. Yes, <laughs> it's really important information. And um, you know, I think that you can't overemphasize the fact that horses um, take longer to mature than we have believed. Many people have believed it's like by six years you're good. Um, and that the rest is so important that they can't handle the, uh, you know, an intensity of work. And I think, um, as I understand it, that's where humans are different. Like you can stress a human body and then, cause there's guys that run ultra marathons, like they'll run, yeah. up, you know, but horses are different. They can't handle that the way a human can. How long is an ultra marathon? I think it's a hundred miles. 
Yes, it's not the distance, it's the time. And they have specific times afterwards. They need weeks to recover from that. They can't run one after the other. It's the same for the endurance horses. They also run run their 100 miles, but they have two weeks specifically, no work in between. They can't go to somewhere else. And also no training afterwards. Yeah, so the body needs time to recover from intense, when you're doing an intense activity. Um, and also in humans, and I, I don't know that people are aware of it as much with horses, but in humans, you you have to plan your peak performance, that you have to plan out your schedule for your your intense increase yes. in intensity and then decrease so that you peak at the right time. Um, yes. Like, that's the same as done for the horses like the the higher athletes who do that um it's the same there is like a study from the university of hanover where they measured um, um lactate in the muscle how long it takes um to uh, get rid of it after a competition till the muscles are back to normal and optimal health and strength it was over a week it takes seven to 10 days till those lactate levels come down. So that means if you have competition after competition after competition every weekend, after the third or fourth weekend, that horse is gonna be so tired and it's not gonna perform up to its best because the lactate levels are just too high. Ideally, you would have maximum competitions every two weeks. That does, that does if you don't get the same amount or high peak of lactate when you have a strenuous training that is interesting so the the transport and the stress during the competition seems to be a contributing factor that causes that tires muscles for longer interesting so rider and substrate as you can see on the lovely picture on the left if the rider is sitting like that, be due to the rider or be due to the saddle, whatever, you're going to get a crooked horse and you're going to get a sore spot on the horse. Um, if, if one is going to be imbalanced, the horse is going to be too. A big no-go for me is the so-called roll core um, or long and low or call however you want. If your head is behind the vertical, it is hindering the movement of the back. It's impossible to move your back in hyperflexion. You can do it yourself. Just put your, your chin down. Hang on, I'm gonna stop so I can see you. Yep. If you do that, what is your back doing? The hollow. Yes. Doesn't feel and good. now when you're standing, if you'd be, can you see me? Yeah. If you'd be standing like that, now try to lift the leg. Yeah, really hard to do. It gets much better when I can get my chin forward. This is why we see why we see tension steps in those horses. They're not balanced. They need to slam their legs forward to get the movement that we require from them. And then they can do it with a very stiff back because they can't move the back. So they need to do everything out of here. This is creating problems in the back. And this is also creating problems from concussions when they're landing. Because the back should work as a, how do you, suspension? It should help with the, with the pressure that we have. 
and it, if it's not, it goes everything right into the legs. And because they're stiff, we're going to go onto the joints and onto the ligaments instead of help it, having the muscles helping to dampen down. Yeah. Overexercising is another one. Like I said, overexercising causes inflammations and adhesions. Um, this means what we talked about, the 48 hours. Um, if we have a slight inflammation, we're going to have um, cells there that are working against that, that help healing. That's usually causing adhesions. But why we, as humans, go to physiotherapy or massage therapists or anything, and you don't have to have somebody like that. If you have been working your horse hard, give him a good, deep brush. Use your brush or use some short foot pads to give them to relax again. Um, give them a massage yourself. You don't have to have somebody doing that. There are so many nice exercises out there that you can do yourself and just listen to your horse. They tell you when, when they think this is a good spot for massaging or this is an exercise they like. They, they're so expressive if we start to listen to them. Another point that's really important the substrate. The softer and deeper the ground is, the faster the muscle will tire. And when a muscle is tired, it will predispose the body to injury, no matter where. Um, just think about you running on the beach. I mean, it's great fun, but the next day you might have like sore calves from running around or even your, your toe muscles feel sore because your toes have to be digging in when you have been playing volleyball um, all the time for two or three hours. Um, and this is the same that happens to the horses. But we ask them again out in the soft tree because we think, great, it's very soft, it's mushy, it's like, but reduce the work. The softer the ground, 30 minutes max. And this is where, you know, I see so many people that have round pens with really deep footing and they're starting their young horses. And I've always been concerned about that because of the fatigue factor, which you're standing in the middle, you're not working. So mm -hmm. the, the time tends that we don't tend to notice the time, but that horse is moving in very deep footing and fatiguing rapidly as an, uh, you know, as a young horse mm -hmm. uh, and then compensating and then moving on an angle and then uh, unequally loading the feet and et cetera. <laughs> and how many young horses do you see with splints? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Answers your question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nasty, I know. <laughs> Next slide. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, but you know, people don't think about, they think the deep fitting, footing in the round pen's good because whether it's going to slow the horse down or be more absorbing or um, cushioning, but it, you know, there's, uh, it doesn't take much to make a footing too deep. I walk in a lot of arenas or have in the past 30 years. I've been yeah. there. So many arenas and there are some arenas that in half an hour I have back pain or I'm laboring to get through it and I'm standing there you know so I know exactly what that substrates like but the the riders they don't walk in it they just get on and ride in it so they don't understand the stress that certain substrates are putting on their horses it helps if you give them an exercise where they have to long rein their horse or where they have to walk next to their horse just to start side passing or something um, this is just a little thing that you can do, um, but just they just need to to remember. 
the softer it is, the faster they tire. A soft, a soft ground is not bad if you don't have like very bad tendon injury or something like that. Um, but you just need to shorten the work. They, like you said, they tire quicker. It's not that one ground is better than the other. It's just we have to adapt to the work. Right. It's the same as like you can horse, you can start horses young. That's absolutely no problem. I think we backed our horses the first time when they were one year old, but then they were out again. That was just like for 10 minutes max that they had a saddle on and they did a figure eight with a rider. They just so they could learn the feeling. They never had any problem. They turned 20 without any problems. But afterwards, they were horses again up till they're three before they started again slowly on the ground. It yeah. is not when you start the horses. It is the intensity. Working a horse, and there's a lot of research from race horses, that their bones are actually stronger and, and more developed if worked properly on the racetrack than what we have from horses that are just standing around in, in, the, in the stables and on the fields. A little work is really good, but overworking is not good. Yeah, and a little work, it, you know, people have a hard time. It's like with Surefoot, they want to leave the horses on the pads too long. A little work is in young horses, as I understand, is 10 to 15 minutes. Yes, you know, exactly. It's a quarter of an hour. That's really, you know, you spend more time grooming and tacking up than you're actually going to spend working. Yes. That's an important thing to keep in mind. And when you've never done it that way, you always think, oh, the horse is not going to learn. But horses are overthinkers. Um, horses need to do something well, and then you reward them, and then you let them go. If, if you do it the next time, they, they already learned. I was astounded how quickly they learned to galloping out of a stand. We just did that two, three times and then stop it. So if that was all the horse had to learn for that day, sometimes the horses were working five minutes and then they were done. Right. But you know what? It worked. They learned. And right. they did build up. I think it's the people that feel like they haven't learned and so they have yes. to as opposed to that the horse doesn't learn. Yeah, for me that was the biggest problem. Um, there was a question from when you can start up intensity. Um, when um, I would just go how strong the horse is. Um, this is really, um, you know, you see when they build up muscle, the horse shows you it's like not as tired as it was before. When horses, when you stop your horse and let it stand in your interval training, that means you, you work it five minutes, then you do a few minutes break, you, you pat it, you tell them how great they are, whatever, um, and then you work it again. Horses that tire start to stand camped out a little bit with a hollow back and something like that. You see when that stands, they start they even can start to stumble or they do not want to go forward as they want it to be. Look for signs like that. And this will change over the week. Muscles need four to six weeks to build up. So this will be kind of like how you can up your training intensity. I'd say every four to six weeks in young horses, but always stop when they have a growth spurt. That means you need to go a step back because they're gonna tire quicker because they have again changed biomechanics and muscles need to work differently due to a longer bone or whatever. Does um, that make sense? Yep, 
we we have a question. I'm just going to kind of catch yep. a couple of questions here. Um, yep. What somebody's asking what good a good core exercise is, um, and I think they meant Cavaletti. Um, yes, you can do that in a walk. Um, it depends from where you start. And um, there's a great book from Narl Stops and Hillary Clayton. It's called um, Activate Your Horse's Core. And it's all about cookie stretches, like some of the ones that um, Ra Raquel showed you last week. Um, they're not just for stretching the horse. If you hold them in certain positions for, for three to five seconds, this is actually training your core muscles. It's training your intrinsic muscles. Um, Clayton and Stubbs did measurements. They did those exercises like the lateral bending to the side and then down to the hock and the one to the front. They did those three times a day for five days a week and had the horses were otherwise unstable rest and measured their uh, multifidy uh, and longissimus dorsi muscle. And after five weeks, they had 20% more muscle mass by standing in the stable, just doing the core exercises. I use those exercises a lot for horses on stable rest, be it like um, they have a colleague surgery or they have a tendon injuries and can go out of the box. That's something you can start on day one. The horse is showing you how far he can go, but everything like Raquel said, keep them moving from the beginning on when they're on box rest. Short foot pads are something else that you can do because it's not, it's not overusing something that needs to heal. If they have a fracture somewhere, okay, leave that leg out, but train the other three. This is, this is something that can and should be done from the moment on they start to recover. Um, pole work, in a walk. I, I really want to, to put that. In a walk, you build up muscle and core exercises. The same goes for a gallop. If you use trot, trot is working on propulsion, but 30% of that force that you get out of a trot is stored energy in the fascia that comes back. That's also why the back is more tight in, in trot than it is in gallop or in walk when you can see how the movement is. Um, it's a total different movement pattern. Strengthening happens in gallop and in walk, but not in trot. So depending how strong your horse is, first work a lot in walk and then trot. Um, gallop trot is just for propulsion and uh, for endurance okay yep I think we're good let's go on okay now now it gets complicated I'm sorry because we're gonna have a lot of neurology in the beginning um, back pain in horses internal factors so we have um, lots of soft tissue that can cause back pain and some of them are nerves um, Many internal problems are not back-related, but can cause back pain. Here is where okay. the um, neurology... Canter. Sorry, um, I'm from Europe. We <laughs> In a German language, we don't have canter, we just have gallop. So, yes, that's canter. I'm sorry, that's, that's me and my language. Um, the vegetative nervous system plays a major role in issues that cause back pain and are not back related. Can you define um, the vegetative nervous system, please? 
Yes, that's what I'm just about to do. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Um, we have in early, early development, when you are an embryo, so even before you are an embryo, when you're just some, some blob with a lot of cells, um, we have two major nervous system develop. One is the vegetative. That's the one we can't influence with our will, but is responsible for breathing, for um, how our um, lungs, the heart are working, the digestion, the liver, everything gets coordinated. We don't have to do that. And how the hormones get like put out and act in our body. This is done by the vegetative nervous system. The other one is the somatic system. This is the muscles we can influence with our will. Um, this is, um, and, and so when we have the vegetative nervous system, it has two major players. One is the sympathics and the other one is the, oh, how is it called in English? Parasympathetics. Yep. Um, the sympathetics, it's fight or flight. That's adrenaline. That's I run, I have big eyes. I'm very fast and I'm very strong. This is the one who usually messes everything up, who uses all the stores of glycogen, of oxygen, of everything that's used or needed to work. The other one, the parasympathetics, are um, loving and recovering. So these are the ones who are who calming down the system, who tell the intestines to work, who tell the blood flow and the blood pressure to go down, um, who tell us to relax and to feel comfortable. And these are responsible for replenishing again. That's why the digestion is in there, um, our energy store. And also get rid of the waste material that got um, produced during the sympathetic um, actions um, and the those the vegetative nervous system is developed very early so when you have an embryo it looks in the beginning like a tadpole so you have a big head and then you have um, the the nerve system where the spine is developing out. This is the first thing that you have. Then it's like it gets some gill rings. And out of those gill rings, we have developing always a dermatome, a myotome, and a visceratome. Um, wait, does that come later on? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that comes later. So we go later into detail afterwards. Um, yep. We have internal factor. We have also the myofascial system that can cause problems, the soft tissues. We heard quite a lot about them already in others. Um, then we have skeletal problems. Um, they can be acquired or congenital, like when we have actual bone problems. Um, then we can have metabolic problems that can cause back pain and some infections and parasites. So this is quite a long list that we usually don't um, connect with back pains. So, um, so basically, we you, you can have back pain from external sources, poor shoeing, saddle fit, rider position, but these internal factors, um, uh, metabolic, skeletal, congenital issues, 
and this vegetative nervous system that we're going to talk about a little yep. bit can yes. cause back pain. So not, not yes. So many people want to blame themselves when they have a problem with their horse, but the only blame they should have is if they fail to investigate. <laughs> yes. And what we have seen with before that there's 19% of back pain that is not back related. So this is quite a number. This means one out of five horses has a different problem. Wow. So it's not one size fits all. Yes. That's why I want to talk about it because it gets often overlooked. Right. Here we have again, here perhaps you can have it in, re in writing. It's, it's a little easier to understand than when I just brabble. Um, okay. So, I'll just, so I'll this put everything is the, up and then that way. I'll yes. So when we have like one of those layers, we always have a dermatome. That means a piece of skin, a myotome. This is certain muscles, a viscerotome. This is certain intestine and a fascia tone. This is something connective tissue. They develop out of the same ring. And now it gets interesting. Otherwise, it would be boring. They, during the development, development of the embryo and the fetus, they do wonder. They go somewhere else. They are just the same origin, but one might end up in a front leg. The other one might be a piece of intestine and the one might be a back muscle, but they come all from the same origin neurologically. This is why you have, if you have a horse with colic, they get, sometimes they get sweat patches just on a little piece of skin on their butt or on their neck, not anywhere else. This is a visceral, this is a dermatovisterosomatic reflex because the intestine is that is from the same nerve from the vegetative nervous system connected is inflamed or and has a higher blood flow the same happens you have a say a higher um somatic tone um a higher adrenaline output in that area of the skin that's why it starts to sweat the adrenergic um um, receptors are working there higher that's why the sweat glands start to work this is just because it's connected but the problem internally is, is what we see on the outside and we get the same with muscles if we have a higher blood flow in the intestines due to an inflammation we have the same higher blood flow in the, the myotome the muscle that stays together with it and this is where we get a soft uh, dip in a muscle, for example, because that part of the muscle has a better blood flow. So it's warmer and it's softer. So everything is connected. Um, these so are the two. Let me just see if I can make the, see if I have this right. So yeah. in the blastomere, you start to get these, these uh, different shapes and you have these four things, dermatome, myotome, viscerotome, and fasciotome. But, yes. but as the system grows, they, they essentially migrate to different areas. So while it seems like they're not connected, they are connected when we go back to the origin of that area in relation to that forming blastomere and, and as it develops in the embryo. So it seems like they're unconnected, but really we have to go back to the embryology to see that they're actually related. Yes, because they're not structurally related but one of the first thing that's developing 
is our neural system, the nervous system, and the vegetative part of it, because the heart starts to beat before, we, before the body starts to contract muscles in, in arms and legs. This is the first part to develop. And this is always going to be at the core of everything. And through that, they stay connected. And we can't affect it consciously very much with our mind. You can kind of like calm down your heartbeat a little bit when you tell yourself, calm down and you do some yoga and stuff like that. But you're never going to get it actually to stop. Right, right. <laughs> so so the, the bottom line here is that we have to recognize that right from like the very beginning, like not the beginning of, of birth, but the beginning of embryo, that there are systems that are operating and that can, that have huge influence on the, the thing we look at when we're training. <laughs> yes. Thank you for making that a little more clear. That was my biggest fear because it's very complicated. Well, I actually embryology in, in college and it was a fascinating class. And, but it's a little old. I don't want to tell you how <laughs> that was. And these, these dermatome, myotome, viscera, they're, they're familiar words, but I have to like pull them out of the archives. So, <laughs> yeah. So if we, perhaps it gets a little more clear if we have it here with a picture. Yep. I okay. tried to find it how it looks later on in the body. So let me just clarify the, the bottom three points there. So the neural neuralation is the development of the neural tube. That's going to become our spinal cord. Yeah. Um, and then we have the, um, um, wh what we call it in English is the autonomic nervous system, which you've called yes. the vegetative nervous system and the, the um, voluntary nervous system, which is yes. the somatic. Um, and so, and then in your autonomic, you have your sympathetic and your parasympathetic, your fight and flight and your rest and digest. Yeah. Great. Thank you for clarification. No problem. So, <laughs> how it's built up in the fully grown body is like here you have different um, vertebras. This is like in every vertebra, we have a little bulge from our um, spinal cord. And this is like, if you look on the left side, you see how the spinal cord looks when you cut it. So you have a ventral horn and the dorsal horn. On the dorsal horn, that's the one on the top. It looks like a butterfly. We have the gray and the white matter. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, I see what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. You have a butterfly here. Um, we have the gray matter in the middle. This is where everything gets um, kind of like... It's like a computer. This is where the actual input and output happens. And the white matter around it is where you, where you have the connection between back end, front end, and going up to the brain and coming back down. And everything that gets um, into the spinal cord enters at the dorsal part. And everything that goes out of the spinal cord and um, leaves at the ventral part of the butterfly wing. Okay, got it. This is what our arrows show us. Okay. Um, so our little dotted line is, is our going to the brain. to the brain, yeah. And our little black line is coming back. Yes. Okay. So if we look here, we have the heart. The heart tells our spinal cord something, and it gives immediate feedback to the heart because it doesn't really go up to our brain and tells us how it needs to be beat the next one. So this is done immediately. Um, this is um, a reflex, actually. 
um, then it can go out because the heart needs to beat more because it gets hot or it needs to exercise more. Our body gets hot then too. So it, while it tells the, the heart to do more, it tells also the muscle cells to work more or to contract and relax faster. This is what we see on the right side. It tells, in addition, our sweat glands, because we're getting hot to cool down the body, um, to work more. And it tells the arterioles, the peripheral blood vessels, to open up to help with cooling down of the body through um, heat, how does it, transduction. Mm -hmm. um, what's really important now that it gets hot, horses do sweat usually 15 to 20 liters when it's a dry day. If it's a hot day, they sweat about 30 liters an hour. Wow. And um, they can only use about 20 to 30% of what they're sweating to cool their body down due to the fur and the bigger insulation. Not like us. We can use about 50% of our sweat um, to um, cool down. And in addition, it's, I know it's off topic, but it's really, I've seen already horses have problems with the heat. They lose about four times the electrolyte plus proteins. Well, we don't do. That's why they're leathering up and why it gets white and foamy when they're sweating. Mm. So cooling the horses down is really important and also the electrolytes. Don't forget that. Just because I've seen it now just reminds me when I see the sweat gland. Sorry, I know it's off topic, but it's really well, important. Well, really off topic. You know, this thing gets messed up when you go through menopause, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you're making me look forward to that <laughs> uh, yeah no <laughs> so if we go to viscerosomatic reflexes um i hope that's the next slide <laughs> yes it is um we have a higher affinity in the front end to um nerves that we can't influence than in the back end if you look, the one that's most in the front is our vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. He has nine to one. Afferent means going back into, gives information back. And um, efferent means tells the body what to do. So our vagus nerve is more giving information than it actually does work. So it's nine to one. If you come further back, that tells us and that's the splanic is somewhere in the middle of the body and the pelvic nerve is more or less 101. So this tells us what's happening in the hind end is not so important for the body than what's happening in the front. Um, visceral afferent nerves are um, higher rated and can override afferent nerve fibers. That means they run parallel, but they influence each other. So if the afferent nerves, the ones who are telling the body what's going on, are very excited, they're also going to excite a little bit the efferents that are coming down just by passing, if that makes, um, if that makes you understand a little better. Yeah, so, so if you're passing somebody and they're nervous and you feel that nervousness, you're going to get nervous too. Yes, even if they're running in the other direction. Right. It's like, where is he coming Why from? Are you doing 
Yes. So internal organs closed to the front, so to, to the diaphragm, like stomach, spleen, liver, pancreas, small intestine, they are innervated from the front. So C3 to C5 usually. We have the plexus brachialis, that's everything innervation in the front because we have just one in the front and one in the back that are kind of coordinating everything. The one in the front, uh, plexus brachialis, is from C5 to TH2. And we can see the innervation of the organs is always coming from the um, lower part of the cervicals. It's coming from there. Um, we also have our center of the... Um, oh, how it's called in English. Um, I'm sorry, I have a blackout in English. That's okay. What is it in, in uh, German? Sympathetic. The sympathetic um, um, core that we have in the spine is over that area. So sympathetics have a very high influence on that area. The efferent output, that means what the muscles are doing in the shoulder girdle, can cause like if we are very tight we know that from ourselves when we're stressed we tight up in the shoulder girdle that's that because the sympathetic um ganglion mm -hmm. is in that area from c3 to c5 somewhere here and it has to go there and it influences everything that's why we tighten up in our front ends when, when we get nervous we we clench our fists we make fists or we tighten up the jaw or anything because that's innervating from that area. And that is not something we can really um, steer because it's done by the vegetative nervous system. So if we have a, vis um, a viscerosomatic reflex, so some examples for it. For example, a heart attack is causing pain in your chest and in your arm especially like in men, that is very typical, in women not so much, um, that they have pain in their left arm. If you have stomach pain or heartburn, you get into a bent posture. Your body does that. You can't do anything against it. it on, on the contrary, if you start to stretch out, it's going to be painful. Kidney stones do the same. Ovarian cramps, every woman who has them knows that. Same with colic. That's the typical sweat patterns that we can get or bent posture. Um, penine beans in geldings or um, in cats, we know they can have obstructions with stones or something like that. Uh, it's the same. And there we can have a lot of um, uh, different uh, examples here. But these do all change our posture. Um, so, if we look at a typical pattern, because we get patterns from those viscerosomatic lamenesses, the horses are always bent or hollow to one side, because like we've seen, due to the contraction that we get on the affected organ. We have a same-sided lameness. This is very, very important. And this is about 20% of that we see. These are the so-called mystery lamenesses. Um, usually a lameness that is caused by a mechanical problem is diagonal. These ones are left front, left hind. 
and not left front right hind where we have the compensation. We have due to the high connection with the sympathetics, we have a higher tonus on the extensor muscles than on the flexor muscles. This is a very typical pattern that we've seen in the lameness. Um, we have a soft spot in the back muscle. Um, this is what I explained. If we have the organ that is part of that, um, that was the viscerotome connected to that myotome, we have a higher blood flow. So you get their so-called soft spots in your longissimus because the longissimus, like um, the rectus abdominis, is also put together on, of different muscle parts. In the rectus, we see it better if somebody's well-trained, you get those so-called six-packs because it's different muscles that are patched together to make one long muscle. Same as in the back. Um, that's why we have just patches. So if we go for you to really recognize them is if, if you think it might be an internal problem, we have always a uni, unilateral pattern in the back. That means front end, rear end, and the bend to the same side. We have um, higher muscle tonicity on the same side sensors and on the extremity pair in the fronts and in the hinds. That's something you can palpate very easily. And you have the soft spot in the longissimus. Next one. So, um, another way to detect internal problems, if you have a vet around you that does acupuncture, they can tell you there are alarm points. And interestingly, we have them also along the back line. Those are so-called um, moo points or back shoe points. These are the two points that we have in the acupuncture that tell us that there is a problem. And it's really interesting when you look at the research from Ricky Schultz and Wipke Elrond in Denmark, where they looked at the fascia lines, they also found that when they looked at acupuncture points, they were actually connecting and going down and to the spine um, and, and at the same point where we see the fascia um, connect to those things. So again, fascia is playing a factor in it. We still don't know exactly how it works, but we know it's connected. Um, uh, you can help with acupuncture or tuina or some uh, pressure points. You can use red lights um, to help them when you see those soft spots. Um, in dogs, they did a study in Germany about those soft spots on, um, on the liver point. And there did, they did find that the, there was no elevation in blood values from the liver when they did that because the liver has a very high um, ability to recover and mask problems. We need to have at least 50% of the organ gone. It's the same for the kidneys till we have or affected till we have higher blood values. But what they did see when they did an ultrasound of the liver, they could see that there was an inflammation of the liver parenchyma. So there was something going on in the liver before it was detectable in the blood that you could actually see outside of the body. 
So yes, you can see that, but you need to have all points there. You can't just say, oh, you have not such a good hair coat. I think you have a liver problem. That's not how it works if you want to do it scientifically. Um, as um, surefoot pads do have a soothing action on the body, and these things are often associated with stress, um, they can be uh, used for rehabilitation of those problems. They're not as a treatment, but they will aid in healing and help them to get better faster. Um, addressing the underlying internal problem is really important um, to help them if you're just if you just work on the um, how do you say if you just work on this clinical sign you see outwards you're not going onto the ground um, you, your treatments won't hold the lameness exam won't give you clear results you can do as many x-rays as you want if it's not from the leg where it shows the lameness uh, you're not going to find it because it's not in the leg you have recurrent um, lameness patterns without a reason and what is really important like you know yourself when you have stomach pain and you try to stretch out this is not going to be comfortable it's even causing you to tighten up more so if that is coming and that's a another thing that should give you an indication that there might be an underlying problem that you haven't found um, when you have the same problem coming back and back repeatedly So now to something more that we can look at. <laughs> so um, congenital anatomically and acquired variations. Horses do not come as the textbook tells you they come. Very rarely they are actually like that. We have variations all over the body. Um, the biggest one is the lumbar area, the neck, these two, like front and hind end, are the biggest one with variations. If we look at the little number from studies, we see that this is one from narrow stops that she did. Oops, go one too far. Yeah. I think that was 2005 or something like that. Sorry, I forgot to put down the number, or 2007. So somewhere between 2005 and 2010, they looked at 120, um, yeah, now it's 2020, 2005, 15 years ago. They looked at 120 race horses um, that died due to other things than back problems. Um, it was mainly for her, for her PhD, about functional anatomy. Um, for morphology and biomechanics, and they had an amazing result. They had over 30% variation in the lumbar vertebra of horses. We know already that a lot of horses don't have the last lumbar, like they don't have an L6. Uh, like everything with Arab in it, it's very common. Donkeys usually don't have an L6, they just have five lumbars. Uh, I have actually a warm blood who has seven lumbars that yeah. we have x-rayed. We, we x-rayed twice and we counted about seven times, but yes, she does have seven. Um, we see a big variation. You can have 
an L6 that decided it wants to be also part of the sacrum. So it is just on one side attached. You can have an L5, L6. They usually grow together over age, like the processi transversi. In horses over eight years of age, they grow together. So it's really interesting. Then she looked at the multifidi muscles too. Here you see we have five fascicles running and connecting. And they looked at the deep, how, it, how is the action of those. So they're really for rotation and stabilization. Then another study, even older, from Dr. Kevin Hausler. He looked at other horses, also race horses again. It's 36 horses. And only 60% of them had the classical number vertebrae. That means seven neck, 18 breast, six lumbar, three sacral, and 14 to 21 um, coccida um, tail. What's really interesting, that's about half. <laughs> so the intertransverse joint presented in the collar lumbar area um, had changes in over 80% of the horses. They found, I know they found fractures. Um, even we forget horses do get back fractures. Usually it is the processus transversus or the, the little um, where the joints are attached, where we have fractures in the horses, um, like those facet chain fractures. This was in 30% of the horses. That means every third racehorse is going to have a back fracture. This is what actually does when we have too much pull from the big muscles that are trained and not enough core muscles and bones that are still fragile because they're not finished growing. They just pull them apart. Like I said, they had pelvis that was not fused at the age of nine years in racehorses. I mean, this is usually if you read the books, they tell you they're fused at five years of age. These were horses with nine years of age who had still open growth plates in their pelvis. So this is not something that we think is normal, that, 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 that's something that everybody exaggerates. This was in, in just 40 horses, they had two of them having that. So the other thing is like, they get arthritis in their back. All of the horses had that 100%. And then we have like the asymmetry in 20% of the horses. So their left and their right side in the lumbar area is not developed the same. So your horse will always have a handiness. He will always bend to one side better than to the other. And this is every fifth horse and you're never going to be able to change that. Um, interestingly, um, taxidermist, um, Walter Volkrow, he's also a very gifted farrier and he puts together all those amazing horse skeletons and he let me use some of his pictures. Um, he saw the same, 80% of the horses skeletons have arthritic changes in the sacroiliac region but just 20 to 30 percent of them had hock and stifle problems this tell me again when we do stifle and hock injections that is done nearly in i don't know 50 percent of the horses but nobody ever looks at the problem up top 
are they stable? Why do we have those problems down there? Um, is it due to the compensation and we have up top, is it, and, and have, have an originating problem up there so we don't have the stabilization down at the hock and on the knee level because this is mainly done due to muscles. Do we have a foot problem that's causing um, a compensation of top and the body's not really working? If you look at the pictures here, um, on the top one, you see that L5 and L6 are fused on the processus transversus. Um, if you look at the lower down, you can see how the first sacral on one side and the last lumbar are also fused there. There's no longer a joint. So this will not be moving equally. It's impossible because it's grown together. So these are really things that we need to ha keep in mind um, that and, the and older horses. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a horse that's lame. Like, like, no, it doesn't have to be lame. It's right. just not able to move the same to the left side than it is to do to the right side. That horse might always have a little trouble to do a gallop on the right hand and has no problem to do it on the left side because the right side is just a little stiffer because it has bony connections that don't move properly. Right. And um, just going back to the Equisoma people, this can be here from... from it, it's, it doesn't have to be a result of being ridden. It's just, a, it could just be a result of that individual horse, that there's so yes. much individual variation that we tend to think everything should be the same in every single creature, but the fact is that nobody's the same. <laughs> no, and we don't change how bones fuse by riding them. No, this is, this is congenital. This is already in there. Um, how do I say, in their genome, how it's going. If you look at that one uh, on the top, it's very smooth. Right. It is healthy. I mean, now, I mean, if you go back and look between L5 and L6, we have that in 20% of them. This is very smooth at the top one here. Yeah, very, yep. very smooth. This is healthy and this is meant for stabilization. Because, and then if you look lower down, you see that these are actual joints. These are joints with joint capsules. If you look at the ones in between the processi transverse in the front, yeah, here, these ones, yeah. These are actual joints with joint capsules and everything. They even have a little um, capsule around them and they're moving. Um, so these are joints, they need to move. And if they need more stability, the body just fuses them. But it's not arthritis. Right. It is how the body, you see that often in bigger, stockier horses, that it is like that. If we want to look at problems, and these are all older horses, about pelvis, if they have fused or not. As far as I remember, they're all over eight years old, those um, pelvis, you see here fractures, you see fuses, you see how the body tried to heal it but couldn't because there was too much pull on from the muscles. You see really how it is like like porous, the bone. That means there was a lot of forces acting on because the bone just turned, when the bone gets force acting on it, it turns porous, very right. porous. 
Um, so that tells me I had a lot of pull on those. It can be that the symphysis is not closed, like it was in this mirror here in the middle. The middle, this one. Yes. Yeah. That I mean, this, is, this is a very instable, instable pelvis. And you see, left and right side is not equally developed. Yeah, it's totally different. Wow. So we can't expect them to work the same. And then we go on to the neck. And Martina, um, um, I yeah. hate to tell you this, but I, I actually have a, an appointment at... No problem. I need to leave at 10.45. So that means you have nine minutes. Okay. So <laughs> we go quickly through that. Um, this here on the right is um, an MRI scan from a foal, a Frisian because there we have often uh, problems of the C2, uh, C1 and occiput together. We also have wobblers, that's another one in the neck. Um, and we can have neck fractures in horses. Then another one that's really important for back pain, back stability and thoroughbred is quite recently out from Sharon May Davis from 2014. We have a congenital malformation in horses from C6, C7 and the first rib. Uh, you can read that afterwards. So I just well, and I'm working through. on having um, Sharon May Davis be one of my webinar guests. Ha, even better. So you're going to yeah. get all those pictures in original. Yeah. Um, she's absolutely brilliant. But it shows you that the lower cervicals are not developed equally, left and right side, and this leads to an instability. We do not have any ligaments that stabilize the lower neck. It's just done by muscle. So. If we have even a bony malformation and we do not have, you can go further, we see pictures then. Oh, yeah. um, here you can see that some of those um, parts where the muscle should attach are missing. So we, we can't, they can't stabilize that properly and there's no ligaments to hold it. So this is gonna cause real instability. And especially if you use to, to ride the horses with the head behind the vertebra, where they have to bend afterwards slower down and where all the concussive forces go through the C6, T1 area because the, the back is no longer moving properly, you're gonna get problems in the back. They all develop arthritis in the C6, C7 area. And this leads to lameness in the front or in the hind end. Wow, this one is pretty, pretty extreme. <laughs> uh, it's a high number. We find it in up to 30% of the horses. Wow. Especially if they have thoroughbred in them. Um, then we can have nerve inflammations due to bad posture, be it like negative plantar angle, ill-fitting tack. They actually can um, develop caudoequina neuritis and sciatic inflammation. Also heavy blunt trauma, like a kick or um, a fall can cause adhesions where my big sciatic nerve runs down. And these adhesions will cause an inflammation of the nerve, which will lead to a compensatory posture and also recurrent lameness episodes. We can have Inflammations like Lyme, Borreliosis, herpes virus, who cause nerve inflammations too. Um, we can have congenital problems. I don't have them here. Um, like swaybacks, mm. who also have lordosis. Swaybacks can have three major causes. One is genetics, 
like Dr. Gallagher did a study on them in 2005 in saddlebreds, where they actually found that it's genetic. Um, they have, if this way is like up to four centimeters from withers to the lowest bottom, what's that, a one and a half inch, that's normal. If you have a variation higher than two inches, this is, is, is like kind of like um, the cutoff for us way back. And they usually have semi-vertebra. That means they have a triangle shaped vertebra that causing the, the, the vertebra to collapse over time. Um, you can have it over age due to, um, uh, due to just like a, the tension of the ligaments and the muscles are no longer there. So they elongate and get stretched. Um, if a ligament is stretched, it's no longer holding up properly because they usually don't shorten up again. Um, you can have hypermobility also due to genetics, what we have in warm bloods. That's what we have them breeding for. Um, they also need more muscles. Another reason to have them on sure foot pads because we need to train our intrinsic muscles. And in California, you can have um, metabolic bone syndrome or silicate-associated um, swaybacks. This means they have a lot of um, silicate in the ground or in the water. This is causing osteoporosis and then bone damage. Wow. This can, can actually cause that. This, uh, it depends on how um, the ground is, but that's something that's very typically seen in California. And these are really horses that need um, OSPOS. We can have metabolic reasons. Um, like I said, 80% of our stability is done by muscles. So if you have impaired muscle functions like um, PSSF or something, uh, PSSM or something like that, this can lead to this. Um, also, if you have impaired liver or kidney function, because then the clearing of the acidic um, debris that happens when muscles function is no longer functioning and they get very sore. Um, ulcers reduce uh, are also something that reduce the um, absorption of nutrients. That's again, that's just the opposite um, of um, the silicate. Um, toxicity that we can have, um, this can lead to starvation of cells. Like if you not have enough vitamin E, for example, or selenium, uh, your muscle is not gonna work properly. You can get either white muscle disease or uh, neuronal disease in horses. This is caused due to um, malabsorption or not enough from them. You can have hormonal imbalances like um, insulin resistant Cushing's, and these are also working on the mitochondrials. So we have the same problems again, that the muscles are not working properly. These horses get very stiff, they get sore, they get um, also due to the Cushing's and EMS, they get um, ligaments that stretch. That's why we have chronic laminitis in them and not acute, especially in Cushing's horses. It's just developing into chewing gum that gets warm and it just slips and gets longer. So stability gets lost. Yeah, that's it. Then we can have infections. Lyme disease is a big one. It has actually four forms, neurologic, muscle, joint, and circulation that get affected depending on what kind of bacteria you, um, what kind of Borrelia strain you get. Then herpes virus, rabies, West Nile fever, all of them lead in the beginning to back pain and funny behavior. Cutaneous butt flies, I don't know if you have them 
where you are here mm -hmm. sometimes especially in the french speaking area they're nasty if you have them in the back they get really sore you get a little dot with a hole with one of those little lovely flies in there tapeworm cysts can cause problems or also um neck neck worms neck thread worms can also cause most of them they're very um um it's itchy but they also can cause um, tightness in the muscles and also like pain. They get muscle stiffness when they have an acute bout. Um, EPM is another one that can cause back pain. That was it. Oh, awesome. <laughs> you know, um, it's frightening to actually see how many causes of back pain there are. Um, that it can be from so many things. That I, in some ways, I think it starts to become a little bit overwhelming when we think about it and we think, you know, like my horse's back is sore, it's something simple. It can be something very complex. I think we, this, it keeps going back to a good diagnosis is really important so that you're accurately treating what you have and what's the cause because it can be metabolic, it can be, you know, Lyme disease is such a big one here where I live. It's the number two yeah. location for Lyme disease after Connecticut. Um, yeah. And so it's important to, to realize that I think probably a way to say it is if you do the simple things like some stretches and that sort of thing and check your saddle fit and check your rider and yeah. it's not getting better, you have to start looking deeper. Yes. And your feet. Yes. Feet, yes. Always, <laughs> always feet. Oh, um, I love the feet. You know, look really quick at the questions because I really do. I'm so sorry. I, I didn't. No, no, fine. Yeah. Go on. Um, let's see. Uh, so um, some people have asked on Facebook, you can always see these. Um, these webinars on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel, please go there. There's lots of them. There's great information and Martina's first one is there. So that's really important. Um, let me just look and see what this, when we see porous coffin bones on x-ray, does that mean it's experienced high pressure or forces? Actually, I think I can yes. handle that. Um, but it also can mean poor, poor trimming, like the long toe, low heel. That's it just means you have sole pressure. What is causing the sole pressure? I can't tell you, but it means it had additional sole pressure and you get pedal osteitis and the bone starts to dissolve. Right. So um, I'm going to wrap this up because I have to get going. But Martina, thank you so much. This has, again, been a really fascinating webinar and um, just really great information. I really appreciate um, how you've brought in so many other factors that we sometimes don't think about. And certainly like the whole dermatome. For me, I'm such a geek. I just love that. Um, yeah. And thank you everybody for tuning in. Just remember, you can see this in all the webinars on the Surefoot Equine YouTube channel. Please subscribe and you'll get a notice when we put up a new video. And don't forget to like the fans of uh, Facebook, uh, sorry, fans of Surefoot Equine on Facebook and the Surefoot Equine uh, Facebook page. Um, I got to run. I'm sorry. Uh, I just, I had to make this appointment. Um, but tomorrow we have another great webinar and it's with Diane Sept. We're going to talk about smooth gated horses. So that's at seven o'clock tomorrow night, Eastern Standard Time, Eastern Daylight Time. I made a mistake in the original email. So seven o'clock tomorrow night. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Martina. Bye. Have a good day. Good appointment. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.